Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. You know, one of the ways that American explorers like Henry Morton Stanley promoted his books and his lectures was by pushing the idea of darkest Africa. It was a term that had all kinds of meanings, racial, intellectual, geographical. So the question is this, when did Africa stop being darkest Africa in the minds of Americans? Time to Eat the Dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, I speak with Jeanette Eileen Jones, author of In Search of Brightest Africa, Reimagining the Dark Continent in American Culture, 1884 to 1936. She talks about many different groups from naturalists and conservationists to African-American artists and intellectuals, all of whom begin to recast Africa in the American imagination. Jones is an associate professor of history and ethnic studies at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Jeanette Eileen Jones, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. You talk a lot about Africa within the American imagination. I'm wondering if you could talk about what Americans thought of Africa, different communities of Americans uh, in the 1800s. Well, the project itself starts in the late, later half of the 19th century, but even in the early period, um, there's still a sense amongst um, Americans that Africa is pretty much the source of, and I would say white Americans, of the slave trade, right? Mm-hmm. Which, although it's abolished in 1807, that's primarily the relationship that um, America as a kind of nation, but also white Americans have with the continent. Um, of course, African-Americans have a very um, complex and at times ambivalent relationship. Some people are still that are living in the early part of the century were born in Africa, directly mm-hmm. from Africa via the slave trade. And so those individuals would have known Africa intimately, you know, the parts of Africa from which they came. And then, of course, you have the, the real first generation of so-called African-Americans or Creoles, those people born in the Americas and their understanding of Africa most likely would have came from their parents or maybe even their grandparents. So there's a really kind of interesting um, idea of what um, Africa means. Is it home? Is it, is it ancestral home? Is it a place of freedom as opposed to where people are in America, a place of bondage? And so I think what I'm interested in, kind of when I look at the long 19th century is is how those images and ideas about Africa change across time. And of course, as the slave trade is abolished, um, it really coincides with 
the rise of kind of race science at the same time. And of course, it, it's, it predates 1807. And so you have Africa also entering into um, scientific thought via ideas about blackness, or at that time they would have called it Negroness, or um, race science uh, that posits Africa as a particular place um, that produces a particular race that's on a racial hierarchy. So that's a kind of other um, layer to the ways in which whites and then people who are engaged in scientific communities thought about Africa. In the late 19th century, you talk about how this uh, image of darkest Africa uh, became uh, very, very common, uh, especially with, within the writings of uh, Henry Morton Stanley. Could you, could you talk about darkest Africa and, and what that means? Yeah, I mean, it, it actually predates Stanley, but as you know, because he used that, t- that term, uh, darkest Africa, in his, in his travel narrative, um, it, it gets some cachet, but, you know, the idea of a dark continent had existed long before then. Um, the idea that Africa was unknown or parts of Africa was unknown and still remains unknown and that there was nothing in Africa that um, reflected a kind of, prog- if you think about the progressive model, right, a progression of humanity. And so Africa is where you would find um the lowest on the racial scale that were the racial scales that were erected at that time in terms of um, of people, Um, but also that um, the actual continent itself had not been subdued. Supposedly it was wild and it had not been conquered by man, right? And so that's the prevailing notion is that Africa needs to be known to the world, but also needs to be brought into a new era, right? For people Mm -hmm who are interested in going there and colonizing it, but also for people who want to go and do, for instance, missionary work and other types of so-called humanitarian endeavors. Yeah, so Washington Africa is really this idea that nothing really good can, can come out of Africa without some kind of intervention, right? When I was thinking about the title of your book, uh, which is uh, In Search of Brightest Africa, I was thinking... Wow, that's that's a really ambitious project because, uh, as you just pointed out, uh, darkest Africa has so many different meanings. It's a it's a racial term. It's a it's a term about knowledge. It's a term about light. And uh, in talking about brightest Africa, it seems also that the brightness that you describe is so complicated. Could you talk a little bit about the evolution of that idea? How how ideas about Africa begin to change in the late eighteen hundreds? Yeah, and, and it's really, I mean, it's multi-pronged, but I kind of look at two prongs, and one is really coming from Black intellectuals who are arguing that um, Africa either had a bright past, a glorious past, um, and you see people writing about that, particularly focusing on um, the eastern part, northeastern parts of the continent, um, but also talking about, you know, other parts of the continent where there are long histories of complex political, as they would have seen a complex political organization, whether it's empires, monarchies, uh, caliphs, caliphates, etc. Um, and um, and then there are those people who also believe African Americans that you know, even if if Africa isn't quote bright at that time, that it can become bright, and that mm-hmm. part of that part of their mission is to help that right. Um, Michelle Mitchell has written about this as the so-called black man's burden, right? Uh-huh. Um, 
the, the missionary, black missionaries going over there, but also school teachers. Um, and of course, Liberia is very much um, tied to this project of, of black modernity in Africa. Then the other prong that I look at are these naturalists, um, people who are in, sometimes I call them natural naturalist environmentalists, people who um, want to travel across Africa, but also believe that the charm of Africa um, rests in its pristineness, right? That it's, it's a jungle or supposedly jungles that have not been subdued. Um, it does have, as a continent, the most wide-ranging uh, fauna and flora, or at least that was the belief on the planet. And so um, they go to Africa initially to get involved in collecting for botanists, also um, safari and collecting animal heads and bodies, etc. But then they kind of shift and, and start becoming conservationists and uh-huh. thinking what Africa, what's special about Africa that needs to be preserved. I really like the example that you give at the beginning of your book. You take us to uh, May 1936, where you have these two different events happening in New York City, which kind of describe these different ideas of a bright Africa. Could you could you talk about that? Yeah, well, one is the arrival of Colonel J.C. Robinson, right, the black condor, Ron Condor, who's coming back. Ethiopia, and he was um, serving as Haley Selassie's personal aviator, right? Uh-huh. And he comes into New York, and he's met with fanfare, and later on, he starts to teach aviation at Tuskegee, at the Institute, of course, and it's going to be part of the Tuskegee Airmen. And then the other event is the opening of the Africa Hall, or the African Hall, at the American Museum of Natural History, um, Uptown. And so... You have the the opening of this hall, and at the same time, the celebration of this of this relationship between Africa, mainly Ethiopia, and African Americans through this figure of J.C. Robinson. And in one case, you have uh, people really pointing out the wild beauty of Africa and the need to conserve it and preserve it. And on the other hand, you have this uh, this pilot who's pointing out some of the human rights issues uh, going on in Ethiopia. Is, is that how we should read that? And not just the human rights issues vis-a-vis, you know, what's happening with the Italian um, invasion, but also thinking about Ethiopia as a site of, of African Black excellence, right? And um, there are other scholars like Nadia Nurhussein and others who have written about kind of Ethiopianism, right, in American thought and thinking about the resonance that Ethiopia has for people who want examples, current day examples, so not ancient examples, but current day examples of kind of black governance, black um, self-rule, black manhood, right, in the in the figure of mm-hmm. Haile Selassie. Now, whether or not they would have used that term black in, in Ethiopia, that's, you know, that's the way they're interpreted in the United States by African-Americans as a black empire, as a black um, independent country in the midst of, you know, surrounded by colonial projects, right, or the colonies. So uh, when you uh, were writing, you you mentioned this idea of, well, I should, I should maybe frame this in the readings that I do on history of exploration, this idea of white man's burden is everywhere, a kind of uh, paternalistic attitude towards the other peoples of the world, and that uh, it's in their best interest that uh, Europeans and white Americans uh, come in and uh, civilize the place. 
But you talk a lot about uh, black man's burden and how complicated some of the African-American attitudes towards Africa are. Could you describe some of these? Yeah, I mean, I think one, one, one way to think about it is how people in Af- a lot of African-Americans have a very Western framework at that time, particularly mm-hmm. had no connection to Africa directly or um, in terms of like, uh, you know, family memory or historical memory. And what you see in some of the, particularly in the late 19th century, some of the, these documents that are being produced by black thinkers about Africa, it is a very um, paternalistic idea of the relationship between African-Americans and Africa. For example, um, Crumble, um, Alexander Crumble writes this, but others as well, that, you know, that the African-Americans are the enlightened blacks or enlightened Negroes of the world, right? Uh That because, you know, Providence, and when they say Providence, they mean God, um, you know, sent sent them to these shores or had a, you know, they were able to gain all this knowledge of the arts and trade and, and Republican governance, and that this is the gift that they can then give back to Africa, right? That they can come uh-huh. to Africa, they can impart um, these skills, they could come there and bring modern business models. And that is really what's, what's very tricky about that, because it is a redemptionist narrative that Black people can redeem themselves and, and find some kind of um, equality or freedom um, through this kind of work that they're doing in Africa. But of course, and for a lot of those thinkers, the Africans are not co they're not, they're junior partners in the endeavor. Uh, and, and yet you also talk about how, you know, this is also the period of the Great Migration where you have African Americans uh, migrating out of the South, creating artistic communities in Chicago and New York, and that for some of these artists, Africa became this place of inspiration. It's just interesting to me how how these two things coexist. You know, it, it reminded me a little bit, and, and tell me if you think this is a, an apt analogy or not, but almost like um, this kind of Orientalism that Edward Said talks about, where you have uh, white Europeans um, looking at the East and seeing all of this stuff that they don't like, and and yet at the same time they want it and are inspired by it too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something to that comparison. I think the limitations of it, of course, is that you know the whites have no claim to the Orient. That right? is true. The same, <laughs> Americans have a claim to Africa, so for them, it's it. So for for a lot of these artists, it's a kind of recovery work, right? If you mm-hmm. use that term, like they're trying to recover something that was taken from them via the Middle Passage, right? Via enslavement. And so um, the recovery, finding inspiration as did, you know, white um, uh, artists and European artists, but in, in African arts um, as to, to formulate their own kind of black aesthetic um, is very interesting because I think they see it as borrowing, but also as recovery, right? Like there's a natural connect- connection that they have that, for instance, Picasso doesn't, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. have that connection, um, yeah, in their minds. Are there travel narratives of the African-Americans who go to Africa uh, to describe this place for African-Americans back home? And what kinds of things do they write about? Um, it's so funny because I'm working on this now. Um, you know, uh, there are individuals like 
the uh, minister resident and council generals of Liberia, the U.S. So they're representing the U.S. for periods of time. They come back. They have their own writings. They describe what they see. But that's really for the government, although Mm -hmm. um, a couple of them, uh, I want to say John Smith, Jay Milton Turner, a couple of others, they come back and they give speeches, right, Um, at black churches, at um, venues that are black-owned for black um, audiences, and they talk about um, what they... um, observed while they were in Liberia. Um, So some of them are on the speaking circuit. Some of them also publish essays that you would find in either um, the AME Review or the Colored American or um, the African Repository, which is the ACS's, American Colonization Society's organ. And they know the readership. I mean, some of it, of course, the ACS organ, you have a strong Black readership, but you also have white readership. but, But of course, the AME, um, court review, um, other Black-owned newspapers, the Colored American, Black magazines, those are for Black readerships. And so a lot of times they're talking about what they see happening on the ground, particularly with Liberia. And it's a mixed bag. Sometimes there are people like, oh, this is not for us. Um, but it's very laudatory of what the African-American immigrants have done. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are... Um, missionaries who go back, who go to Africa, and they send back their reports, and, and their mission, their reports definitely have the darkest Africa savage tropes in it, and how this work is that they're doing is really bringing um, light to the continent, etc. But they do, um, for instance, uh, George, uh, excuse me, William Shepard's uh, reflections on his time in the Congo, I mean, a lot of it is um, about the people. It's a lot of thick cultural description, or we could call it ethnographic description, um, his meetings with various peoples. And so those are, you know, those, some of that is read by blacks, but he's a Presbyterian, so maybe not as many. But again, a lot of it is description of culture, but also, you know, some of the same tropes that you would find in, for instance, some of the uh, white missionary or travel uh, narratives. So uh, since you bring that up, I was wondering, you know, in Stanley's writing, as as you know, as well as so many other American explorers to the Arctic and other places, these expeditions are placed to express a kind of white masculinity. Mm-hmm. And do you find a parallel process happening with black travelers to Africa from America? Yeah, I mean, I think I would call it Definitely for some of the men and women, I would call it, uh, I use the terms race manhood and race womanhood, you know, those, those ideas, um, which is not necessarily about going to Africa to become men, like it, it, through some kind of strenuous activity, think, you know, thinking about, for instance, Roosevelt's idea of the strenuous life and how you see that bleeding through a lot of uh, American travel narratives. This is more about political, social engagement and the ways in which Black men are able to be men, and when they say that, they don't mean picking up stuff and, you know, do you get what I'm saying? Like men in a kind of social and political sense, right? Yeah. They are seen as men and not inferior and not subservient. And you see that also um, with a lot of the women who, those women that have, um, whose writings are still extant, 
who talk about their their sense of, of accomplishment or perhaps the better word is meaning, like finding meaning in what they're doing and how that reflects on their own sense of womanhood, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to the kind of images of Black women back in the United States, you know, the Jezebel, the Mammy, you know, the Sapphire, those drudge, those image, those totalizing images that restrict them. And so you see that in um, Shepherd's Wife's um, narrative, right? Thinking about what it was, what it was like for her to be in the Congo, but also the sense that she had a mission and that um, this work, this place allowed her to carry that out. So I was wondering, you, I know that your your book takes us up to 1936, but then uh, I was struck by your introduction where you say how much as a, as a kid you were really taken with Africa and um, that you had this kind of vision of it. And then years later, you traveled through West Africa as well as South Africa. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I guess both both the personal side and also just how the um, Africa in the American imagination has changed. Yeah, I mean, as a child, I think also there were competing images. I mean, Africa was kind of a dirty word. And, you know, people would use that when I say that other kids would use it, like they would call people African booty scratchers and things like that. Like these kind of weird derogatory um, terms. But at the same time, there were people in my life who had... Um, strong connections on my father, all on my father's side to Africa, meaning they had traveled there. My cousins were living there um, because their father was working on his PhD, that kind of stuff. My grandmother's um, boyfriend um, was African and worked at the, at the UN. Um, so, and one of my dad's cousins expatriated himself. So he left America in the sixties and, and lived in Africa and, and died there. And so it was interesting because that was a different Africa, right? So what I learned was not the stereotype, at least not coming out of my household, right? Mm -hmm. The cultural sites in um, New York, uh, in terms of the main ones, so thinking about the museum, still had a particular view of Africa, right? That was very static. And, um, you know, the first time I went Mm -hmm. to Africa... I, I, you know, at least I got to see the dynamism, um, the diversity of Africa. I mean, I knew that before I went, but just to see it and to experience it, um, and to and and really to to see that you know Africans are not pre- preoccupied with what we're doing. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of like, oh, they must be thinking about. No, they're they're living their lives, right? Um, they're they're doing their own thing. And I think the West has a kind of arrogance about itself that everyone's looking towards it. Um, and that's not the case, right? I mean, they do, right. you know, it's, it, these are decolonized um, places, um, at least, you know, so when I was there, people still had, you know, if not physical or physical memory or actual memory, excuse me, but, you know, historical memories of the colonial period. But for the most part, they were caught up in their own politics, their own local and regional and uh, national politics. And uh, were you working on your PhD or your book manuscript at this time, or was were these travels to Africa before that? No, the first set was um, while I was doing coursework, because my second field is, or my third, my minor field is pre-colonial Africa. 
So that's why I went to um, West Africa because I wanted to go to some of the sites, the places where the um, you know medieval African kingdoms were yeah. in the West Coast. But when I was in South Africa, I was um, at a conference and I was also doing research for uh, my dissertation. So uh, one of the things that I experience, I think it's kind of a downside of maybe studying travel or exploration is that when you go to a new place, you're kind of both seeing the place and then you're thinking about the place as a writer thinks about it and you're kind of examining your own experiences. I was wondering if that was going on in your head as you were traveling through Africa, where you kind of uh, in two places at once? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. I have to say, I feel like there were times when I was just in the moment mm-hmm. and really wasn't thinking about it. I mean, but because one was a course, I had to constantly think about the work that I had to do for the class. And I think I was more aware of it in South Africa because I knew I was doing research there. Um, but there were times where I just wanted to be just in the moment um, and not thinking about how everything would relate to how I was going to write about Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, I, I guess you kind of gave us a preview already, but what's, what do you think your next project's going to be? So my next, my current project is about um, the U.S. and Africa from 1847 to 1919, but I'm more interested in the foreign policy, where foreign policy meets kind of popular, not so much images, because I've done that, but popular discourses or or, uh, particular discourses about the relationship um, between the U.S. and the rest of the world and where Africa fits into that. So a lot of it is heavily, heavily reliant on um, archives from, you know, the diplomatic Mm -hmm the consular service, right? Um, and so I am looking at American consulates in um, Africa and um, I and also looking at um, what Europeans thought about that. <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah, so it's been interesting. I'm almost finished with the research and um, writing starts this semester. So I <laughs> have enough to start writing and um I'm looking forward to writing this book because I think that we really haven't looked at the consulate service and also um, not just what America's relationship to Africa is, but what does that say about the U.S.'s own sense of its place in the world during that period when every, when the, you know, the so-called age of empire, yeah. right? How balanced empire. What does Africa have to do with that when we only think of African um, U.S. empire as being, you know, hemispheric and Pacific oriented. Jeanette Eileen Jones, thank you for talking with me today. I really uh, have enjoyed reading the book, and uh, I think you do such interesting work. Thank you, Michael. That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration-related stuff at time to eat the dogs.com.